October 29th, 1929 was a day that went down in history as Black Tuesday. And it was on that particular day that the stock market crashed and a period of time known as the Great Depression began. On that day, the Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 23% of its value in a single day. By the end of the next month, there was more than $100 billion that had been lost, financially ruining people in that particular uh, generation. I'll never forget the second church that I served. We had a dear sweet lady. Her name was Miss Beulah, and she was 100 years old. And at least once a week, I would go visit with Miss Beulah. She was in a nursing facility. And though the years had taken their toll out on her body, her mind was still as sharp as ever. And I used to love listening to Miss Beulah talk about all that she had witnessed in her lifetime. I mean, going all the way from the period of time where they had a horse and mule to get around to the age of the cell phone. But during the Great Depression, Miss Beulah was a young woman. And I remember talking to her about what it was like living in the Depression. And she said, you know, we kept hearing that word. Everybody kept talking about a Depression. She said, but the way we grew up and where we lived out in the country, it was just business as usual for us. We were poor before the Depression. We were poor after the Depression. But during that period of time, banks collapsed, businesses folded up, inflation, unemployment soared to record levels. And if you were to go back a few years prior to that point, uh, the decade that led up to the crash was a period of time known as the Roaring Twenties. It had been a time of wealth and excess for so much of society. One writer even said of that particular period that a speculative boom had taken hold late in the decade, leaving hundreds of thousands of Americans to invest heavily in the stock market. A significant number borrowed money to buy more stocks. And by August of 1929, brokers were routinely lending to small investors more than two-thirds of the face value of the stocks that they were buying. And all told, more than $8.5 billion was out on loan, which was more than the entire amount of currency circulating in the United States at that particular time. But you see, it was all an illusion, a false sense of security, something that was destined to crumble, and crumble it did. And not too long ago, we saw something similar happen in 2008 with the financial meltdown that happened that year. And we were confronted with headlines such as these from Time Magazine, Bailout Nation, September 2008. USA Today had a headline that screamed, Wall Street Financial Meltdown. The Washington Times reported, Wall Street panics as markets lose $1 trillion, Dow plunges 778 points. And one poignant headline from Newsweek in October of 2008, the headline was this, the fall of America Incorporated. It was a nightmare, day after day, bad news. We witnessed the collapse of institutions like Fannie Mae and Fre Freddie Mac. General Motors became government motors after receiving so much bailout money from the federal government. World markets took a nosedive. 401ks became 201ks practically overnight. 
And many said that it was the most serious economic situation since the Great Depression. That was nearly a decade and a half ago, believe it or not. And here we are, 14, 15 years removed from that, and we can't help but wonder if we're about to experience something worse. The headlines are screaming inflation. All of us are grappling with record high gas prices, food shortages on the rise. And certain prognosticators in society are even saying that there will be serious food shortages around the world by the end of the year. And historically, it's been the economy of the United States that has recovered the quickest and, and the fastest during economic downturns such as these. But here's the question that so many are wondering. Are we standing on the precipice of a recession from which no one economy, no one nation, no one league of nations will be able to pull us from? And I know you're traveling down the highway and you've been encountered with those signs that say crash up ahead. In many ways, we wonder if we're seeing that sign that is just blaring its warning, major crash just up ahead. And let me tell you something, words like depression and recession will not be an apt description of the complete system failure that the Word of God says is in store for man's fallen world. And the last book of our Bible tells us all about it. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. And in many ways, this is the story of redemptive history. It's the story of a tale of two cities, the city of man as it's held in contrast with the city of God. And the book of Revelation shows us how the city of man will ultimately come to ruin while the city of God will be established for eternity. And the final four chapters of Revelation involve subjects such as the second coming of Jesus Christ, the future millennial kingdom of Christ, the new heaven, the new earth. There's a wonderful description of the new Jerusalem, the city of God. And so before we begin working our way through these final chapters of Revelation, I do believe it's important we, over, we understand the overall emphasis or the big picture of the book. And I pointed out from last week, from chapter 1, that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that word revelation means unveiling, which means that it's here we're presented with a picture of Jesus Christ in all of his glory and in all of his power. And Scripture shows us how human history is rapidly moving toward a goal, rapidly moving toward a destination, and it will ultimately culminate with the return of Jesus, and that's something that's described with detail in Revelation chapter 19. And we'll get to that, uh, but before his return, Revelation tells us that this present world system, which is now under the influence of the evil one, will be brought under judgment and will be brought to an end. And so in chapter 19, uh, the opening verses of chapter 19 reveal celebration in heaven. Uh, heaven is singing a hallelujah chorus. And someone says, well, why is it exactly that heaven is so joyful and there's so much celebration? Well, it's because of what's transpired up until this point and how man's system has been brought to an end Man's fallen kingdom has collapsed, and this is going to give way for the establishment 
of Christ, his return, and his glorious kingdom, which is described in chapters 19 and chapter 20. So what I want to do this morning is I actually want to go back just one chapter to chapter 18 as it will establish context for the opening verses of chapter 19. Revelation chapter 18, in this particular chapter, the apostle John is describing something that's referred to as Babylon or the fall of Babylon. And uh, in particular, chapters 17 and 18, Babylon is symbolic of man's system, a final world government and final world or global system, if you will, under the influence of Antichrist in the last days, which is destined to come under judgment. And what man puts his ultimate security in, his money, his political power, his economic clout, the pursuit of pleasure and idolatry, all of this is going to be shown uh, for the emptiness that ultimately it really is. And it's coming to a collapse. And that collapse is recorded in the 24 verses of Revelation chapter 18. But I just want to read uh, for the sake of time through verse 8. So begin with verse 1. The Bible says, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And she has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. And as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. And for this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. Now listen to this. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. I want to speak from this subject this morning, when Babylon crumbles. All throughout Scripture, Babylon is associated with the city of man as it's in rebellion against God and his rightful lordship. Babylon is a symbol in many ways of humanity's attempt to unify the world in opposition to God and without God, but we know that that's something that's doomed to fail. It cannot stand but is destined to crumble. And so much of Revelation is saturated with the symbolic, and this symbol of mystery Babylon is given more attention than any other symbol in the entire book. You want to know why I'm referring to it as mystery Babylon? All you have to do is glance back in chapter 17 and the opening verses there and verse number 5, where there John is 
given a vision of a woman and the description of the woman is quite graphic. She's described as being a harlot or a prostitute who is uh, riding the back of a beast, a multi-headed beast. And that beast is descriptive of the Antichrist and his government described back in chapter 13. But the woman has emblazoned on her forehead this name, Mystery Babylon. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And so a few things about Babylon that I want you to consider with me this morning from chapter 18 and really this overall passage. Notice to begin with, there's an explanation that's received. John here is being shown what is ultimately going to happen as man's world and man's system is going to be reduced to ruin under the judgment of God. And so he's describing a system within this passage. Uh, he's being shown something that is symbolic that points to a literal reality. Chapter 17 reveals how he's carried away in the spirit into a wilderness, and he sees this vision of a harlot sitting on this scarlet beast, and the beast has all of these blasphemous names, seven heads, ten horns. And when you look at the description of the woman, it's obvious that she's not a woman of virtue. Verse 4 says she's arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with jewelry. And she's holding in her hand a cup of abomination and impurity associated with sexual immorality. And verse 5 says, emblazoned there on her forehead is this name of mystery, or literally, Mystery Babylon, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And so what you have going on in this passage is really a symbolic picture of a false religious ideological system and how that's been somehow wedded with political power and economic clout. So religious ideology, uh, political power, economic prosperity and pursuit of wealth and this kind of, that pretty much sums up what man lives for, doesn't it? That pretty much sums up the system of man and all that this world fights and kills for and covets. And so that's what Babylon really represents. And so we need to consider the history of Babylon. Uh, Babylon has origins that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. In many ways, the storyline of the Bible is centered around two cities. You've got the city of Babylon on one hand, and you've got the city of Jerusalem on the other. The city of man, represented by Babylon. The city of God, represented by Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the city that's mentioned the most in the Bible. It's mentioned some 800 times. Babylon is mentioned some 300 times, and it's the second most city mentioned in Scripture. And so, symbolically, believers were the citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. This is where our citizenship resides. Unbelievers and those in opposition to God find their citizenship in the earthly and sensual Babylon. But as far as the history is concerned, if we go all the way back to Genesis chapters 10 and Genesis chapters 11, uh, immediately following the great flood, the Bible talks about a particular guy. His name is an interesting name. I would not recommend you name your sons. His name is Nimrod. And Genesis chapter 10 says that he begins to be a mighty man on the earth. He's a, a man of conquest, a man who is going about setting up his kingdom. And the beginning of his kingdom, Genesis 10 says, is Babel. 
What did that consist of? Well, Genesis chapter 11 tells us that it consists of building a tower. And there on the plain of Shinar, in ancient Mesopotamia, uh, you had humanity who came together at really this first attempt at trying to rule itself in opposition to God. Rather than obeying the command of God to scatter throughout the earth and to be fruitful and multiply and populate the earth, the builders of Babel determined that they're going to build a tower, the top of which will reach into the heavens. And their attitude is summed up in Genesis 11, verse 4. They say, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So the builders of Babel are in defiance of Almighty God. Their actions defy his word. They set themselves up as their own authority. They declare their own independent autonomy and determine that they're going to rule themselves without divine intervention. And it's all an attempt on man's rebellious part to try to unify his world apart from God. Well, you know how the Bible says God responded. He confuses their speech. And so Babel means confusion. They're not able to work together toward their godless goal. And the result was that they're forced to obey God's prior command to spread out and repopulate the earth. Which, by the way, God's will is always going to be done whether we like it or not, whether we submit to it or not. So we might as well humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God or one day he might just humble you. And so what's the ultimate result of the scattering of the people? Well, from Babel, you've got man that goes out, uh, uh, multiple languages, multiple subcultures, still not submitted to God, but it produces cultures and kingdoms committed to man and countless man-made religions, and all of these have come under the influence of Satan, whom the Scripture says is the God of this world, the ruler of the prince of the power of the air. And so he works to unite humanity in rebellion against God. And this is what Babylon is symbolic of here in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Now, there's some who hold to the fulfillment that Babylon will be literally rebuilt and that this is a literal city that's being referred to here. Uh, even perhaps the economic capital of the Antichrist in the last days. I don't think that's something you can be dogmatic about, but keep in mind the principle here. All right, lest we press the details too much, the idea here is that this is man's system as it's come under judgment and what people have put all of their hope and attached all of their securities to and their satisfaction and fulfillment, in life, it's coming to naught. It's coming to nothing. Don't you think it's a tragic thing to live for a world that's ultimately destined to crumble? Why pin all of your hopes on a house of cards that's destined to collapse? And so if you put all of your hopes in your bank account and all of your hopes in your possessions, and if entertainment is what you live for, that is so unfulfilling and unsatisfying, and it will come to nothing. As believers, we're grateful to have a citizenship in the heavenly Jerusalem, not the earthly Babylon. And so that's the history. But why is it referred to as a mystery? The mystery of Babylon, this is something that's described here in chapter 17 and 18. Why is it, why is it that John uses this word mystery to refer to Babylon? 
That's a very good question. Because the answer is this, a mystery in the Bible is something which is progressively understood. It's something formerly hidden, but now seen in the light of full New Testament revelation. And so Babylon, as it's presented in Revelation, is symbolic of man's pride and ego, all the power that would exalt itself against Almighty God. It's combining all the best efforts of a collective humanity to rule itself without God. And notice iniquity, how iniquity is mentioned there in verse 2. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt, haunt, haunt. That word is used three times there in the verse. And it translates a word which means cage or prison. So the idea is there's demonic influences behind man's fallen and sinful society. And what John is being shown here, this great city is now nothing more than a prison for unclean spirits. Imagine what you would experience if you were to take a field trip to the local garbage heap or the landfill. And that's kind of the idea here. This is, this is the opposite of what God has in mind for man's world. Isn't it amazing that God, when he creates man, he places him in a perfect paradise environment there in the Garden of Eden? God's ideal for humanity, humanity finds its life and its origin and its meaning and its purpose for its existence in God himself and the life of God himself. But Adam's sin has led to death and decay. And so what you now see is here's all that man can do. The best that man can do is reduced to a garbage heap because of sin. Man wants paradise, but man wants paradise without God. He wants paradise and utopia, but he wants it on his own terms. He doesn't want it on God's terms. So here's the thing. Rather than this beautiful garden city that God envisions, Babylon has become just the opposite. It's a desolate, demonic wasteland, void of the life of God, and who in their right mind would want to find their hopes in such a wasteland as that? So the mystery of iniquity. Babylon represents the course of sin and iniquity as it's running its course throughout man's life and man's society. And then notice her mysterious influence there. Verse 3 says that all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So the idea is Babylon has had this influence that has spread throughout the world and permeated the nations of the world. She's had a corrupting influence on the world. Verse 23 says that the nations were deceived by her sorcery. And that word sorcery translates a Greek word, pharmakia. Same word we get the word pharmacy or pharmaceutical from. It's the idea that Babylon has been a drug that the nations have imbibed. The nations have become drunk with the intoxicated lifestyle and worldview and mindset of Babylon. Sin is her leading export. She's intoxicated the world with a sinful pornographic influence. And she's cast her evil, idolatrous spell over the nations. And then notice her mysterious indulgence there. Verse 3 says, The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So you've got immorality, indulgence, 
This is characteristic of man's society apart from God. This is what the world is living for. This idea of extravagance, self-indulgence. Reminded of a song, I think it was Liza Minnelli who sang that it was money. Money makes the world go round. A mark, a yen, a buck, or a pound. That's all it takes to make the world go round. Well, such is the anthem of Babylon. Because money and possessions and entertainment, this is what the world lives for, and Babylon represents all that man attempts to build for the purpose of exalting himself. It's government apart from God, financial gain apart from God, self-glory apart from God, and the point of the vision here is to show how it's coming to naught, and it will come to naught in the last days. So that's the explanation that's received by John. Now, notice the second thing. There's a separation that's required. Verse 4, John says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. So again, lest we press the details, what's clear from the passage is the fact that God is calling believers of this particular time period to not compromise. Now, people say, okay, is that referring to us? Well, I tend to hold to the view that the church has been raptured before this point in Revelation. However, there's a principle here that you and I had better not forget. I believe that the rapture of the church happens prior to the tribulation period in the last days. But there's a lot of people who've bought into that and they've adopted this mindset, which means, well, that means that I shouldn't expect any suffering in the world as a believer. No, listen, you had better expect suffering in an unbelieving world under the influence of an evil one, and Babylon wants to exert its pressures daily on the people of God. We're constantly being faced with pressures from Babylon. We're told that we ought to live like Babylonians. We ought to spend our money like Babylonians. We ought to adopt the sexual beliefs and worldview of Babylonians. In Babylon, let me tell you something. The national flag and the colors are the rainbow of Babylon, something that's totally different than what the Scripture says the rainbow's all about. Are y'all tracking with me? Amen. A sign of God's covenant faithfulness to humanity. It's just like the evil one to want to take something like that and pervert it and twist it and make it all about man's unfaithfulness to the covenant-keeping God because that's exactly the attitude of Babylon. And so here's what, here's what John is hearing. Don't compromise. There will be believers in the tribulation period who come to faith in Jesus Christ. And they may feel that the system is all-powerful, but it's not. The destruction of Babylon and the salvation of God's people is well on the way. So here's the principle. And this applies to believers of every age. Don't buy into the ideas and cave in to the pressures of an unbelieving culture. Don't get sucked into the mob mentality. Don't partake of the uh, current worldview or involve yourself in its practices and live with its values. Be separate. Be different as the people of God. So there's an explanation that's received. There's a separation that's required as far as the people of God is concerned. We didn't read verses 9 and following, but there's a lamentation that's raised. 
If celebration is the song of heaven in chapter 19, well, those who are trying to find their ultimate meaning and worth in the things of this life, when this world collapses around them, there's going to be a sad, sad song of lamentation that's going to be raised. And that's the theme of verses 9 through 19. Who is it that's going to be weeping? Well, the kings of the earth, verse 9. The merchants or businessmen of the world, verses 11 through 17. All of those connected to industry and commerce who stand to profit from Babylon's wealth, verses 17, 18, and 19. They're going to raise a sad song of lamentation when Babylon collapses. Why are they grieving? Well, they're grieving over the sudden destruction of their system. I can count up at least four times in chapter 18 that Babylon's destruction is set to happen in a single day or a single hour. You see it in verse 8. You see it in verse 10. You see it in verse 17 as well as verse 19. And the idea is that destruction that will come will be swift, almost seemingly out of the blue. While things are progressing right along and the system seems to be working, all of a sudden it collapses, it's gone. It's sudden destruction that takes everyone by surprise. You might could say that John is being shown an, an economic meltdown that makes the Great Depression and Black Tuesday pale in comparison. This is a financial Armageddon where man's money is brought to nothing. Nothing more than paper, not worth the paper it's printed on. So here's the question I would raise. Why in the world would you put all of your eggs in Babylon's basket? If this is ultimately the destiny of Babylon, it's destined to crumble, why put your eggs in that basket to begin with? And so they're weeping sudden destruction. They're weeping their scarce condition as prosperity has been replaced with scarcity. Like dominoes, the world's economies begin to topple. The markets tank. And chapter 18 reveals that there will be stuff to be purchased, but nobody has the resources or the means with which to purchase it because it's complete collapse. It's system failure. In fact, you'll notice verses 12 and 13 mention 29 specific items of value that they're weeping, that they can no longer get their hands on. Things like precious metals and stones, fabrics for expensive clothing, ornaments and decorations, aromatic fragrances like cinnamon and spice and all things nice, foodstuffs like baby food, Wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, the staples of life. Cattle, sheep, horses, chariots. And listen to this, human souls. Babylon is being judged because of the way that it's cheapened and devalued human life. Trafficking in humans, like, like people are nothing more than goods or commodities. One can't help but think of the blood of the innocent slaughtered from the womb from a past generation, all in the name of freedom and personal autonomy and pursuit of pleasure. And don't think for one second that the blood of the innocent does not cry out to God Almighty daily from the ground, because it does. 
And if you're thinking, okay, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, until evil is dealt with in totality? If you found yourself crying out, how long, O Lord? Then listen, you know that evil ultimately is going to meet its match and has met its match in the person of Jesus Christ. And the judgment of God is as sure as anything. But yet now we live in a time of real strategic patience, don't we? Because the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. Now is the time and the opportunity for people to repent and come to faith in Jesus. If you're not saved, now is the time for you to be saved and come to faith in Jesus. When you consider where the world is headed and where Babylon ultimately is destined how it's destined to collapse. Why would you try to find security in such an empty system as that? God has far better in mind for those who flee to him for refuge. And so you can understand then why heaven is celebrating. The world will be lamenting the fall of Babylon, but heaven will be celebrating. And one final thing, it's because vindication finally has been realized. Verse 20 says, rejoice over her, O heaven, you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. And this is something that's cause for celebration because it means that Jesus Christ, the true and rightful king, he's coming to establish his rule and reign upon the earth. The enemy is a usurper, and he is defeated. And the people of God have nothing but good things to look forward to because we put all of our hopes, listen, not in a city that's destined to crumble, not in a city that's set for destruction and bent on destruction and bent on going its own way in rebellion to God. No, we're looking for that city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God himself. I bring this to a close, just a few things to keep in mind by way of application here. You know, all of us want security. I get that. We want security in life. We look for it in marriage, and we look for it in our jobs. We look for it in our bank account, our homes, our cars, the things that we own. And yet, we tend to forget that all of that security can disappear in just a moment. And it's, real, it's, it's, it's not really security if it can disappear in a moment. The only guaranteed security that we have is a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. So let me tell you what this means for believers. It means we need to live soberly, first of all, to live with a proper perspective. Don't get carried away and caught up with the spirit of Babylon and become Babylonian in the process, but live soberly. And then, secondly, live responsibly as believers in Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 6, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth that's ultimately destined to come to ruin. No, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't put your eggs in Babylon's basket. Live soberly, live responsibly, and then one final thing, live purposefully. Live purposefully. Live for the glory of God. Live for the advancement of his gospel. Make the most of every spiritual opportunity that you have while you have it.
Live as a witness. Point people to Jesus. Leverage your resources for the sake of the kingdom of God. Listen, I'm going to say something. I want you to listen to Who's to say that when you're given a pay increase, why does our standard of living have to increase? What if our standard of giving may be what the Lord wants to increase for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of mission advancement? Are you listening? Because that's how God's citizens of Jerusalem live differently than citizens of Babylon. And let's not be people who want to live with one foot in Babylon and the other foot in Jerusalem. Let's be all in for the kingdom of God as the people of God. Let's stand for prayer. And so these chapters just merely tell the story of how man's system, under the operation and the influence of the evil one, is destined to crumble. Don't lose joy as a believer when you look around and you see things happening in the world and you wonder why things get the way they are and how people can don't lose your joy because listen the world doesn't know any better it's under the influence of the evil one but we as the people of God ought to be able to see clearly and that means we should live confidently and point people to the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ there is an enemy whom we stand against, and he is defeated, and Jesus Christ is our soon-coming King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, in the precious name of Jesus, Lord, how we need you. God, every day we feel the pull and the tug of Babylon on our hearts, telling us what to believe, what to buy, how to live. And Lord, help us to see things the way they are with a biblical worldview. Babylon is destined to fall. And Jesus Christ is coming. And he's our Lord and our master. And Lord, what a day that will be when Jesus establishes his kingdom upon the earth. And it's a kingdom of righteousness and a kingdom of peace. And Lord, my desire, the deep desire of my heart, if there's any person, Lord, in this room or watching online this morning that does not know Christ as their Savior, Lord, may they repent of their sin, believe the gospel, that Christ died for their sin, that he rose again from the dead. May they confess him as their Savior and Lord and bow the knee to Jesus before it's too late. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.